Thank you, Tim. One of our uh, elders. Uh, I'm actually going to stop and pray again. Um, What you wouldn't know is that Tim lost one of his friends yesterday. You may have heard about the sailing. Uh, They had the regatta, and uh, they lost a person. That's one of Tim's friends. And um, also, as many of you know, Eric and Sally Bauer, for many years, members of our church. In fact, she still provides all of our images. Um, Eric's father died a couple of days ago. So let's just stop and lift these people up. Father, we do lift up um, the Bowers and their loss right now. They're still important to us. Lord, we pray that during this time you would be a source of strength and grace to them. And um, just help them. Show yourself strong. And Father, I pray for the man that uh, lost his life yesterday. So many people know him. He's been here for many, many years. Pray for Tim and and, uh, Linda Sealing that you would just comfort them during this time. That you would um, strengthen them. And Lord, the whole uh, sailing community of which Nancy and I are part of. There's a lot of people that are kind of shocked and experiencing grief right now that perhaps you might use this as an opportunity to show them what grace looks like. Thank you for being so kind to us. We are so very appreciative of you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Some of you remember me telling a story. Um, oh, it's been a few years now. I was at theological conferences in uh, San Francisco. I went with a friend of mine down to a bar uh, just to have pizza and a drink. And we were tired of hearing theological papers read after two or three days. And so we just wanted to get a break. So we're sitting there watching watching the Broncos plays on a Thursday night. And uh, my friend and I were sitting there watching this big screen. And the three guys in front of us young San Francisco businessmen, they were um, they were cheering for the other team. So in keeping with my personality, I just started throwing trash bombs onto their table, and uh, they started reciprocating. And uh, midway through the second quarter, one of the guys turned around, the guy in the middle, and said, so on a commercial, what do you do? I love that question. I just said real simply, theology. He goes, theology, what do you mean? It's said, Christian theology, I'm sure you've heard of it. And he says, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff. And I said, you don't? Wow, sucks to be you. And he said, what do you mean it sucks to be me? Why do you believe it? And I said, that's easy. The question is why you don't. And he said, well, it's all myth. It's all right, let me make sure I understand. You've read the Bible. You have, you have investigated the claims of Christianity. And you've come to an educated conclusion that Christianity is mythological. Is that right? Of course, the answer is no. He didn't. And he admitted that he hadn't. And I said, say, Monju, you call yourself an educated American? You're forming conclusions based on stereotypes. And then he asked the question, the real question, well, why do you believe? So his two buddies turned around, the three of us, they're facing us now. So the five of us are having a conversation. And I said, um, <coughs> and I said, well, first, when you think about God, the Christian God, what do you think of? Do you think of a God who 
cares about us, who loves us? Or do you think of a God who's up there just waiting for you to cross a line? And he said, well, definitely that. It's astounding to me how we as Christians have managed to communicate to an entire generation or two or three that that's the kind of God that we serve. So he said, so why do you believe? And so what I did was, I mean, we're just doing a series now, a different kind of faith. And so I began highlighting the differences of Christianity. And one of them I got to was... um, they were talking about the different religions and Buddhism, Hinduism, and all that. And I said, um, so do you believe in dignity? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, then you're really in a tough spot because Christianity is the only religion that believes in dignity. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, in every other philosophical system that I'm aware of or religious system, they start with the premise that you're not good. And you have to go through... Whatever the religion is, reincarnation, emptying yourself, whatever it is, the whole premise is that you have to become something different than what you are. Said Christianity, we believe that you're made in the image of God, and that's really good. I don't know about you, but I like being me. I don't want to reincarnate into something different. Said I've only sat here for 20 minutes with you, and I'm already enjoying you being who you are, and you don't have to become something different. And all three of them said, huh, huh. Today I want to talk about dignity. You see, I think that when we start talking about a different kind of faith and talk about Jesus, which is great, I have no problem with that. That's the very core, the very center of our theology. But but long before Jesus is on the scene uh, in the New Testament being crucified for us, there are so many other things that lay a foundation for what we believe. And one of them is dignity. Dignity. That is a foundational piece to all that we believe as Christians. So we use the image of uh, a hand reaching out. Picture God, the one true living God, opening his hand and reaching out to us and inviting us into a relationship with him. And with each other, by the way, and with all of creation. So you could picture that. And so that raises a question, what, is it, what are we talking about when we talk about dignity? Or what does it mean that God extends dignity to us? And I think this is a very core question in our whole belief system. So the very heart of human significance and meaning is captured by the idea of dignity. So at its core, dignity means that something is worthy of respect and honor. We saw last week from Genesis 6 that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. And we clarified that. When we think of evil, we often think of murderers and things like that. Well, that's definitely evil. But uh, many of the great civilizations have been held up as models of how how to organize civilization. And yet the Bible is clear, the inclination of every human heart is evil. So what's he talking about? The very definition of sinfulness or evil is that we decide to trust us rather than God. Even when we do good things, we trust ourselves rather than God. That's why every inclination of the heart of every human is to trust ourselves rather than God. 
So how can it be possible that God thinks we are worthy of dignity? How is that possible? Because for some reason he does. He thinks we are worthy of honor and respect. Ultimately, we find that expression on the cross, but we see the evidence of that long before we get to the crucifixion. You see, the story goes all the way back to Genesis. One of the reasons that the creation story is so important in our theology is that God gave humans choice. Some of you have told the story that I was in a chat room um, on LinkedIn dealing with theology and And it didn't take me long to realize that the chat room was really filled with a bunch of professionals who had a very different agenda than I did. And it was to undermine Christianity, undermine the the Bible. So one guy, and I didn't comment, I just read and listened to the conversation. So one of the scholars said, yeah, it's it's amazing that I hear that there are actually people that think Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the beginning of the Bible, is, is could possibly be real. It's just myth. So I finally chimed in. I said, I believe it. That's all I said. They don't know anything about me. I mean, they could look up my credentials because we're all part of LinkedIn. And there was silence for a day. And somebody wrote back and he said, I am absolutely astounded that there's an educated person out there that believes it. How could you possibly believe it? And I said, because Genesis 1 and 2 lays the foundation for all, in my perspective, of Christian theology. And that is, God decided to extend dignity by giving us choice. That's the fundamental way dignity is extended to someone else, is by giving them choice. He treated us with respect and let us choose. And so Genesis 1 and 2, right at the beginning of the story, sets the tone of dignity, showing respect. He gave Adam and Eve the choice. You can eat of everything you see except this one tree. So a couple days went by and it was silent. And finally one guy chipped in. He says, well, you've given me a perspective I've never thought about. And they moved on to their agenda and I quietly withdrew from the the thread. Didn't want to participate anymore. But you see, God gave choice to Adam and Eve. And he said, don't eat of the one tree, but you can eat of all these. So why did he pick the one? They could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I would argue that uh, Satan actually had some level of insight. He says, God knows that the day you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. He was correct. And the temptation was very alluring to Adam and Eve. And so they disregarded God at that point, his choice, and did what they thought was best. You see, why is this significant is because we're not created to understand the difference between good and evil. That's not part of our created design. To really understand good and evil, there's several other things you have to know, all of which involve omniscience. You have to know motives. I don't know what your motives are. Why, we, why you do the things that you do. We have to know the circumstances. I don't know your circumstances. Okay? It's real simple. You can walk in, you're in trouble for being late at work, and you say, I'm sorry for being late. And your boss is angry with you. And then you say, I had to take my spouse to the emergency room this morning because she almost died. Everything changed. 
Oh, I didn't know that. And so the whole story changes dramatically with a simple piece of information. So God didn't create us to know the difference between good and evil. That's his prerogative. That's a divine prerogative. It's not ours. And so we labor constantly. We work hard um, trying to figure this out. Trying to figure it out. And actually, if you look at the rest of the Bible, God's still trying to protect us from this one thing. There's a lot of stuff in there about, you know, ascertain the facts on the basis of two or three witnesses, never on one. James says, if you like wisdom, ask for God, he gives it generously. Paul says, be very careful, Galatians 6, when you confront somebody, or you might fall into the same trap of arrogance as them. So even today, God is trying to protect us from this knowledge which we weren't created for. Any parent will tell you it's the most uh, exhausting part of parenting. He said, she said, he said this, she said that. Well, it's not like Solomon. You can't pull out a sword and cut the baby in half, right? You can't do that. We do not have the capacity to know with any precision what is good and what's not. The story of the Bible reinforces that over and over and over again. And so we do well. I teach young pastors and counselors, when you form an opinion about somebody, hold it loosely because you don't really know what the truth is. You think you do, but hold it loosely and hope that you're wrong or that the truth comes out so you know how to help people. So from the very beginning, that's called dignity that God extended to them this this restriction. But let them choose. Let them choose. Well, to eat of the tree of life would have uh, burdened the human race beyond all that they could carry because they would be stuck with that incredible responsibility forever without the means to fulfill the responsibility. And so it was God's grace in Genesis that he banished them from the garden so that he could begin the process of redeeming them so that they would enjoy the tree of life when the time came. So in other words, Paul, well, Paul says in Romans 7 that I would not have known it was sin if God hadn't hold. And so this gives us the basic picture of what sin is all about. You've heard, some of you have heard me use this story all the time. It's a metaphor. If I have a four-year-old son and I say, don't run out in the street or you're going to get hurt, that's responsible. If I say nothing and they run out into the street, the probability is really good they're going to get hurt. Therefore, it's an act of grace for when I say, don't run out in the street. That's all the identification of sin is, is an act of grace to tell us what's going to hurt us. If God had never said a word about how destructive alcoholism is, it'd still be destructive. We would just have to all try it to find out. But we have a gracious God who says, don't do that. That's what sin is. And so when he banished them from the garden, that was a means of grace. So we wouldn't be burdened forever with the tree of life and no means to fulfill it. That's called dignity. It's called dignity. After the fall, the fall, God continues to extend dignity. He could have ended it right there, but he chose not to. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. Uh, the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but God called to the, the man, where are you? So right off the bat, God began to pursue them, knowing full well what had happened. He went on and pursued them. 
He then clothed them once they had the conversation to help them hide their shame. Verse 21. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He then banished them from the garden. I just talked about that, verse 22 and 24. I'm not going to read it. But he just banished them from the garden uh, so that they couldn't eat from the tree of life and be stuck forever in this, uh, this cycle that they could, never now, they could never get out of it, trying to assess good and evil in a fallen world. Now, because he is God, he knew the full extent of what they did, and he decided to love them anyway. He decided to love them anyway. This is dignity. You see, this is what undergirds the entire Christian faith, is that God has deemed we are worthy of honor and respect. We are worthy of dignity. I know it's very common, Rob and I have had the conversation many times, how much of our praise music focuses on our worthlessness. And uh, in the process, we're, we're throwing something out. We're throwing a baby out with a bathwater. If God deemed that we were worthy to continue to pursue, then we should be very careful how we use this language. Okay? We should be very careful. I am absolutely convinced now that God pursues every human on the planet because he cares about them and because they're worthy of dignity. In fact, the very nature of dignity means he gives them the freedom to rebel and reject him. We're not robots. So one of the clearest examples of dignity is that he pursues every human. There's no statistical advantage to being born in the U.S. over Iran. There isn't any. Because God is pursuing And dignity means he gives them the choice to reject him. I think Paul argues that in Romans chapter 1. At any point, God could have started over, but he chose not to. This sets the stage for the rest of our time on earth, and this is very unique among world religions. It's very unique. So when I'm sitting there talking to these three businessmen, and I've had the experience many, many times, over and over again, I'm just astounded at how we have communicated to a world a God who is so judgmental that they want nothing to do with him as opposed to a God who cares so much about them that he's not going to give up. I love the story of Peter and Matthew, Matthew's uh, rendering of it. Because early on in Matthew, he says two things that Jesus' teaching said, don't ever swear by an oath. And if you deny me before humans, I'll deny you before the Father. Those are the two very words that he uses to describe Peter's denial. He denied him publicly three times. The very thing he said not to do in Matthew 7, and he swore by an oath. The very thing he said not to in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet Jesus went after him. That's dignity. He didn't give up. Judas saddens me, but the same story is there. He extends Passover to Judas, knowing full well that Judas is going to betray him. And then in the garden, what does he say to him? Friend. Last conversation he has with him. One more chance friend. Judas betrays him and then goes off and kills himself. But you see the heart of God right there. Those two men were so important that God did not quit. Jesus did not quit. quit. He went after them. That's dignity. He has, in his wisdom, deemed us worthy of honor and respect. That's dignity. He didn't start over. And trust me, this is so unique among the religions. This is one of the ways that we are different is that God extends dignity to us.
From now on, in the story, God demonstrates his redemptive heart by continuing to extend dignity. We saw last week that the world was forever trying to find morality, and they couldn't. Their evil was consistently defined as choosing their own perspective rather than God's. So within this context, God consistently intervenes to shape world culture. This is at the heart of redemption, and dignity is an integral part. Whenever God steps into our world, I think, he, I, think I see it so clearly now. He does three things. Number one is he restrains evil practices. Number two, he introduces dignity. And number three, he points the way for culture to head, true north. He gives us now insight into where we're going. The examples are all over the place. Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Humanity is worth spreading out. Why? Why? Why didn't God just leave them clumped together? Well, because he had just made all the nations. And so God didn't in way understanding who he is. You see, picture it this way. Here's God, and he surrounds himself by, I know this is an older toy now, a kaleidoscope of nations. Okay, And each of them can perceive God slightly differently. I'm not talking about Buddha and Allah. I'm not talking about all that. I'm talking about the one true God, that the language conceives of him differently from one another. Then he chooses one, Israel, to go reach the rest. So when we began to listen, this is what I love about traveling through third world countries every year. When we begin to listen to other languages, other nations, and how they view God, we begin to get a three-dimensional picture. So humanity wanted to stick together, and God said, no, you need to spread on the earth so this, so this natural phenomenon, you can begin to see who I am. Humanity is worth spreading out. The promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, humanity is worth saving. I will bless all the nations through you. Selling Joseph into slavery, that's a classic one. Abraham's offspring is worth being used for the purpose of his mission. So Joseph, many, many, many years later, can conclude, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And now I'm here to rescue all of my family because of the famine. That's dignity. God preparing ahead of time. Saving of Israel, the Exodus. God's people are worth saving and shaping. On and on and on the story continues. Everywhere you look in the Bible, you see this graciousness on God's part by extending grace, by extending dignity to people. So the Bible is a continuous story. This is how I look at it, of God compromising for the sake of the gospel. And in the middle of all that, he's extending dignity and giving people a chance. He's very patient. Allowing people to choose. Well, the very heart of being made in the image of God captures this picture of dignity. Genesis 1, and 27, let us make humans in our image. You know the story. He wanted us to be like him. He wanted us to enjoy him. That's dignity. That's a love so profound, it's hard to capture beyond simple words. Even in a fallen state, we have dignity from his perspective because he is the one who made us. For those of you that have had children, you know what I'm talking about. Because they make bad decisions and we still love them anyway, don't we? He made us. So because of sin, we're unable to live as God intended and created us to live. Now, this is where we're going to jump all the way up to the New Testament. This is where the ministry of Christ comes into the picture. In Philippians 2, um, 
he's going to argue that Jesus is an example of this dignity. Okay, I'm going to read Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Verse 5, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He could have easily done that as God, and he chose not to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. So the ministry of Jesus, again, this is unique and very countercultural among all the world religions and what we believe. But this is a statement of dignity. Because the differences between God and humanity are vast. They're very vast. Every philosophy believes that. Christ had to do more than simply give something up. He actually had to make himself nothing. Some of you know this as the emptying passage. That's what he's talking about. In this context, he is still the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1 argues that. He's in the very nature of God, Philippians 2, 6. He is equal with God. And John says that he's God himself. And this is what makes him unique, because he made himself nothing. He became a slave. We call it a servant, but there's no fundamental difference in the first century between a slave and a servant. He became a human. While being made in the image of God is a source of great dignity for us, Christ becoming a human was a a source of great humility for him. That's how important we are. For whatever reason, he has deemed that we are worthy of honor and respect. That's dignity. Christ's identification with the lowest state of human existence, becoming a slave confirms that God highly esteems every human being, including the greatest sinner. That's dignity. Dignity is the foundation upon which everything we believe exists. Everything. But you know what the world is like? What does this mean? Some thoughts. The world in which we live, and it's a crazy world right now. It's crazy. I'm not sure any of us know how to handle the protests, the coronavirus, the the. We all have our opinions on the looting and the all of that stuff, and yet this is the world that God chose to pursue, to redeem, to save, to love. This is the world. He didn't wait for humanity to get its act together before he extended both dignity and grace. He stepped in while the world was a mess. First century world was just like today. Study first century history and it's like the Roman Empire better than us and they're not worse than us. It's a messy world. And God stepped in while the world was a mess. And I believe this should be our posture today. If God deems that I am worthy of honor and respect, even in my deepest sin, then aren't the people that we disagree with, aren't they worthy of our honor and respect and our dignity? At some level? This should be what the world thinks of when they think of Christianity. 
Not a God up there just waiting for you to cross the line, but a God who loves you so deeply, every single one, that he steps in while it's messy and extends dignity to them. How much different Christianity would be viewed if that's how people thought? Sitting in that bar in San Francisco when I asked that question, I would have loved it if they had said, you know, I don't understand how, but I have heard the Christian message that your God is loving and gracious and extends dignity. I would love that. But that's never the response. Even today, God knows the truth about each of us and loves us anyway. Hebrews 4. You heard Tim read it. Now listen to this connection very carefully because even in your Bibles, we divide it. For the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, if we stop there, it's a judgmental, judgmental life. If we stop there, and in all of your English Bibles, there is a uh, paragraph separation with a title, subtitle, just to make sure you don't get the connection. If we stop there, it's a judgmental world. But the very next verse, therefore, therefore, since we know that God knows everything there is to know about us, He goes on, since we have a great high priest who is ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive judgment and punishment. Oh, wait. So that we may receive mercy and grace and help. That's dignity. That's a profound love. You see, it's the second half of that paragraph that gets left out of the equation. What would happen if we taught the world, our God is so loving that he's going after you, he's not going to quit. He's going to give you every chance. Oh, he may have to judge, but he lets you choose that judgment. You get the choice. You have the dignity of rejecting him. This is why Christ came, to redeem a tired, evil, fallen, confused world. But he did more than that. He extended an open hand of invitation to enjoy him. He reached down to restore dignity even when he knew the very worst about us. He knows everything there is to know, and he came anyway. That is dignity. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible love. Deep and profound, hard to believe, and yet it is as real as reality can be. Help us as Christians in today's very confusing world, messy world, tired world, help us to be the source of light, the source of invitation, clarity, because you've given us a gift that doesn't exist anywhere in the world 
it is different what we believe. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen.